Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. My friends who listen to Future Primitive, I'm on the phone with Robert Tyndall. I just found out that he's actually sitting in the Botanic Garden in Golden Gate Park. He is a writer, a classical guitarist, a longtime practitioner of Zen Buddhism, and an inveterate traveler whose work explores the crossing of frontiers into other cultures, time deaths, and states of consciousness. He is the author of two books on shamanism, The Jaguar That Roams the Mind and The Shamanic Odyssey, Homer, Tolkien, and The Visionary Experience, and many other articles. He works, he collaborates with his wife, Susanna, and he has a daughter called Maitreya. So let's begin this uh, little walk in the forest, like I was saying. Welcome, Robert. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Good. Wonderful. Well, you know, I was um, browsing and taking a walk through your work this morning, and I'm going to jump right in. I was thinking that um, Western people might be very violent and depressed because we've lost touch with our shamanic roots. We have no idea where we come from. And so, in a way, I'm referring to your work about Tolkien and Homer by saying this. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, my initial response is, it's true, because we come from right here. Right, right, I get it, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, our mythological, our mythological, our indigenous roots. Yeah, and um, I think that the years of work that um, I've been privileged to do, both in the Amazon and the Native American church up here in the north, has driven home the point to me that, you know, texts, sacred texts like Homer and Tolkien, which are such a part of our cultural inheritance, um, are just imbued with that, um, that, kind of um, depth of permeability with here, you know, the plants and the waters and the stars and the many beings of this world in, in, in the kind of indigenous way that um, where everyone is equal in the creation and we are in a reciprocal relationship with other beings. 
and the cosmos is alive. It's sentient. We're part of it, but we're not alone in it. And that's actually, it's Martine Prechtel who mm -hmm. um, often says that people are just so depressed and lonely because they, um, they don't have the joy of direct connection with the world anymore. I know about 10 years ago, I, I was down in, uh, way down in the Amazon forest, and uh, I had uh, the privilege of uh, drinking the tea there. And the greatest experience for me was to be in the forest and to feel the forest and to really be impregnated by the forest. Could you speak about your experiences of true connection with the sentient beingness of nature? Well, I think it changes over time. Um, I, I think it can come as a, a sudden influx of very uh, awakening energy, uh, like happened to me when I was first drinking ayahuasca and... Um, I transformed into a jaguar, and it simply rocked my psychic foundations um, and eventually led me into the rainforest. But, um, you know, these days I find myself communing with the waters of the world a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm very concerned about their health. I'm very concerned that uh, the waters... Are, are trying to keep this world pure and we keep contaminating it. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a sense of, of water as being um, quite literally our mother, a, a sentient being, a, a great womb of life. And um, our relationship with water is of the greatest importance to me now. And I spend a lot of time praying and thinking about the waters of the world. Uh, so... I, I think our focus has shift over time, too. I now have a daughter, so I'm very concerned about the future of the planet. So... And also... Yes. Yeah, go ahead, Joanna. No, no, I was... I just wanted you to um, dive deeper into this subject of water because, indeed, it's as important to us as the blood in our veins. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it is the blood in our veins. Mm -hmm. And... Um, well, perhaps I, I first really started uh, becoming more aware of that um, facet of, of work with the medicines when uh, I began participating in the Native American church. And, of course, there's a prayer to the water that happens in every uh, teepee meeting. And um, I, um, I, I found myself uh, reacting with delight to the very direct attention that the church was giving to the health of the water and to its deep respect for the water as the source of life. Um, and, you know, as well, um, our teacher in the, uh, the vegetalista tradition of Peru, the Ashaninkan shaman Juan Flores, has his center, Mayantuyaku, located at a site where there is... Uh, geothermically heated water, which is flowing from deep 
beneath um, the land all the way from the base of the Andes Mountains to emerge at this place that the Ashaninkins have recognized as sacred for a long, long time. And in the work that he does there, he has many songs to the water, and he uses it to help heal people. And he even sings over the water. Uh, he gives agua y carada to people as, as a way to help them heal there. So um, the, the whole um, practice of purifying the water vibrationally is, I, I think, a really important one for us to start understanding better now. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. we're, we're going to have a lot of cleaning up to do. Yeah. And I would add one more thing. Yes. Um, not so long ago, I was at the archaeological site of Chavin, and um, in Peru. And coming out, there came a moment where I was purchasing water from an indigenous person there. And as he handed me the bottle, packaged by a foreign corporation, of his water for me to pay for, which he had also paid for, I looked at him and I said, this water is yours, you know. And he he looked back at me with about 500 years of forbearance in his face, I swear, and just said, yes, I know. The water, water is a refugee at this time. Yeah. yeah. So, Robert, I want to ask you, uh, as you are a classic guitarist, um, what is the connection that you see between uh, music and the imagination? how you define imagination. Tolkien actually uh, defined it, um, I I think, in a kind of transpersonal way, where it it wasn't simply um, thoughts going on in your head, but our mythopoeic capacity to um, imagine in the same way as Creator God did. Mm -hmm. And... um, of course, you know, I began by training as, as a musician in uh, the Western tradition, but then when I got to the uh, rainforest and began encountering how they use songs to um, modulate and open consciousness in different ways, it took on a, a whole new uh, quality for me. And... Um, I think that uh, music certainly has the capacity to attune our minds in in different kinds of way. You know, when we listen to uh, violent music, it affects us like that. Um, And there are some kinds of music that open the gates to... um, perceptions of reality that aren't really habitual. Mm. Mm. You know, one of the really lovely accounts in literature that I write about in my most recent book comes from Shakespeare. It's a very neglected play of his called Henry 
the eighth. And in it, uh, Catherine of Aragon is dying, and she begins having visions of the heavenly realm as her musicians are playing. And it's, it's really fascinating because it happens in two episodes. And in the second one, the spirits actually enter and play for her because she's really approaching death. And the music is so incredible that um, she's transported. And after the spirit musicians depart, the human ones enter and they start, you know, like um, their chainsaw, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. work on their instruments. And, mm-hmm. and she shouts out, stop this cacophony. <laughs> How can you play such awful music? Everyone's shocked in the room because they haven't seen the spirits come in. But she's heard the music of the spheres. She's heard that divine music that... Um, you know, Pablo Amaringo would talk about um, so beautifully. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot, you know, music and healing is uh, a, a super interesting avenue to keep exploring in depth. And uh, my wife did her PhD dissertation actually on experiences of tense healing, intense healing in ceremonies of ayahuasca with Icaros. Yeah. Yeah. Icaros are so beautiful. So I want to ask you, now that the word shamanism has been so thrown around and so, in a way, uh, vulgarized, would you tell me from your heart and mind what you think and feel true shamanism is? Uh, beautiful response. Um, I, I, I find myself, I'm now much more working on issues of cultural regeneration. I find um, shamanism is an inherent component of traditional cultures. Um, and I think that part of the problem we're trying to, or part of the problem that we've been experiencing in transplanting it back into the West is we don't have the proper soil for it. So instead of it being an integral part of a, of a larger cosmovision, a relationship with the earth, with the, you know, the rhythms of the seasons, with plants and animals, it, it, it kind of comes in as a little woo-woo. And um, we don't know how to hold it very well. So I, I think that uh, I get the impression that there are a lot of folks running around saying that they know things. And it's, it grieves me, because we don't yet. We're still pretty young. And um, um, I'm finding my own work, you know, much more connecting with the earth now, my, my concerns. I'm not, um, not so concerned with shamanism anymore. Right. You know, in the same way as I was when I was young and naive and starry-eyed and mm-hmm. all of that, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think we need more humility. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the word uh, shamanism and humility can be interchanged, definitely. Well, all of the mature practitioners of traditional medicine I have known 
have a very humble component to them. And then you say shamanism operates in the realm of paradox. So I think that that explains it very well. Yeah. So um, let's talk about uh, Homer and Tolkien. And uh, how you see these portal stories as related to one another yes mm. okay um, well first I, I should say that I consider both to be sacred texts yes and um, one thing that we find very much in common between the two well Yes, um, is that Homer is writing in an age when the indigenous experience of the cosmos is still vibrant. Um, there's, throughout the Odyssey, there's a very strong uh, interaction, a navigation through a sacred world happening where spirits are extremely important. Plant spirits matter. Uh, there are spells that are cast and removed. There are entrancing songs that capture people in their orbit. Uh, there's... Um, the cosmos is alive, uh, all the way down to the, the little plants on the pathway and, and uh, the stars above. And Odysseus makes it home by... Uh, navigating through this um, oceanic realm of spirits. And, um, you know, in the, in the time that Homer, whoever he was, recorded his work, which is really a kind of um, repository of the more ancient bardic tradition, of the Mediterranean. You know, we, we see elements in the Odyssey going back to the Minoan civilization and then far beyond to the Paleolithic people. So it's it's like an archaeological site as well. But mm -hmm. that, that sense of indigenous uh, embeddedness in a living cosmos was still very present for the Greeks at the time. Now, when Tolkien's writing... He's actually committing himself to reawakening people to this. And uh, we know this from various statements he made, but probably the best one is the night he attempted to convert C.S. Lewis to Christianity. And it worked, but it didn't end up being the kind of Christianity Tolkien hoped for. <laughs> um, but he took a very interesting approach, and Tolkien and Lewis were on a walk. And Tolkien says to Lewis, this is a quote now, you look at trees and, and call them trees, and probably you do not think twice about the word. You call a star a star and think nothing more of it. But you must remember that these words, tree, star, were in their original forms names given to these objects by people with very different views from yours. To you, a tree is simply a vegetable organism. 
and a star is simply a ball of inanimate matter moving along a mathematical course. But the first men to talk of trees and stars saw things very differently. To them, the world was alive with mythological beings. They saw the stars as living silver, bursting into flame in answer to the eternal music. They saw the sky as a jewel tent, and the earth as the womb whence all living things have come. Mm -hmm. To them, the whole of creation was myth-woven and elf-patterned. And so um, what Tolkien, his express purpose in his work was to re-inject the vitality of pre-Christian Indo-European, specifically European myth, back into Western civilization. And, in, and basically when you're doing that, you're back in an animistic culture, in an animistic perception of the world. Yes, and that's what I meant, saying this very early, that um, this helps us Europeans recover our true origins and therefore feel rooted in the earth. Yeah, and to realize that uh, um, it, it's not just you know, native people living in the Amazon rainforest right. that understood this kind of thing. You know, we are indigenous. It is in us. It is yeah. in us. It is yeah. us. It's, yeah. it's at the core of our traditions. And I think we, like you say in, uh, in your writings, it would be much more difficult to create an atom bomb. I mean, I'm paraphrasing if we really felt our origins. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So uh, I like the twinning that you made between uh, the sirens in the Odyssey story and the sirens in the Amazon. Could you speak about that? happens when um, it all began when we were doing a dieta in the rainforest. And a dieta is a traditional part of the medicine down in the Amazon where you go um, deeper in where you have no contact with people and you reduce your diet to the point of eating basically roast bananas. And you drink plants that have different teaching and healing capacities. You're you're apprenticing in that you're communing with the spirits of the plants. And um, at a certain point, uh, Juan Flores came back and uh, was sitting with us by the river that was flowing beneath our tambos, the little grass shacks that we were living in. And he started, we started talking about the waters, and he began talking about the beings that live in the, uh, the Amazonian waterways, like the Yacarunas and the Serenas. And as he was describing their behaviors, it suddenly struck me that there is a very strong parallel with Homer's description of the Serenas, who um, some of us may remember are uh, inhabitant island, which Odysseus 
and his men sail past, and they emit a song, a rapturous song that, that comes across the water and can actually entrance a sailor to leap off the ship and swim toward the island, even while seeing in plain sight the uh, shriveling corpses of other mariners caught within this violent, violently enrapturing siren song. So I related this story to Juan, and, and uh, he said he'd never heard of Homer before, but uh, those were definitely the serenas. And I thought to myself, now how is this possible? And when I came back to so-called civilization, I taught the Odyssey. I, I just chose it out of the blue. And as I was teaching it, these other features of um, shamanic relationship with a living cosmos kept leaping out at me um, to the point where I became convinced that the Odyssey is actually, at its foundation, an indigenous document. If there can... I mean, that almost sounds like a contradiction in terms. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, Martin Trechtel is attempting to reintroduce such a, a genre. Yes. So let's go with it, right? Yes, yes. And um, it's been like that a lot, you know, working in the medicine traditions. One keeps encountering um, analogs with uh, uh, practices that we know of both from archaeology um, and also from texts, uh, uh, also the Celtic texts, you know, the works recorded by the early Celtic monks, also will have material in them that are just remarkably shamanic. What is your um, view and understanding of uh, the spread of the use of medicinal plants as a healing force at this mm. time? I want to issue uh, a caveat. Um, the ayahuasca is so over-harvested in the rainforest now that our maestro is actually preparing to start serving a, a brew which has, he claims, identical effects to ayahuasca, but is prepared by the barks of 20 different trees. Wow. The shamans down there are gearing up for the um, the loss of the vine. It's a same similar situation is happening with peyote. It's also becoming scarcer and scarcer. And um, I noticed that the consumption of ayahuasca is particularly ravenous among Westerners uh, these days, and. We are, um, again, we're, we're treating this plant in the same kind of way as we treat other resources right now. We just consume it until it's gone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I need to say this because people are generally unaware of uh, the impact, even of the degree of ayahuasca use that's going on. Now, um, to answer your question, yes. Um, 
I, I see people with profound spiritual, psycho-spiritual motivations very often that are coming to work with these medicines. And they do so because they wish to have direct communion with uh, the Creator, um, but the Creator is manifest in the elements. You know, the, the Platonic strain in the Western tradition separated us from the elements as sacred, and Descartes just drove home the final coffin nail. That's right. You know, and, and so, you know, what's happening is a kind of revolution here. It's an epistemological, ontological revolution where people are saying, no, you know, I, I want my direct access. Thank you. <laughs> I'll take the, the air and the water and the fire right. and the plants and, and beings of this world. Uh, ask divine. And um, I want to open myself to that, to, to this knowledge. Uh, and it's happening. It works. You know, people are just doing beautiful things in these traditions. And I think we just, again, we need to grow up and start taking responsibility. It's, it's, it's great to go to an ayahuasca ceremony, but where did the brew come from? You know, what are we doing to uh, help sustain it? These are, you know, as you mature, we should, as a community, start taking on these bigger issues much more actively. So you're really, uh, what I'm hearing is you're expanding on, you know, Timothy Leary spoke about set, setting, and dose. And I hear you saying set, set, setting, dose, and the ecological, the care and caring of the ecological environment. So what in your idea would be the ideal set setting an ecological environment? Well, I'll be honest, I don't know if I've really ever hearkened to that um, statement of Leary's. Um, but uh, basically, I, I think that we, um, you know, hopefully the culture is moving in the direction of, of deeper and deeper ceremonial um, ability, you know, um, I, I do think that the proper context, in other words, what the plants like, <laughs> mm-hmm. is uh, to be held in reverence and um, to be given the kind of respect that a ceremony offers them. And um, I, I, you know, I'm constantly suggesting to folks that it's it's good to go and apprentice with uh, an elder in some indigenous tradition. And there are some um, Euro-Americans who are now elders, too, you know. Um, and, you know, to do your ethnographical study, you know, read your anthropology, uh, Locate yourself in terms of where the tradition came from and, 
and um, get oriented. So I, I think that that, that uh, expression of veneration, which is embodied in ceremonial context, and of course, in uh, as natural a setting as you can achieve. You know, yeah. the world needs our prayers. Yeah. Is uh, also an important part of setting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe I addressed it, set and setting. And dose. <laughs> oh, yes. dose. Oh, yes. God. Yes. <laughs> yes. You learn about that with time. <laughs> if you, it's how sharper than a serpent's tooth is too high a dose of ayahuasca. <laughs> wow. That's excellent. Excellent. So you lead me into a subject that I, that I love, which is, I read that Tolkien said, fairy is a love and respect of all things inanimate and animate. Yes. So I want to ask you how your love has grown and what love rep- of all animate and inanimate things represents to you. I think that it's just turned into real commitment, you know, to um, the future. Um, The new book I'm working on is with a very talented anthropologist named Frederick Opfeld Marglin, um, whose center I visited in um, Lamas, Peru. It's outside of Terrapoto, the town that we were working at the Takawasi, the Center for the Treatment of Addiction, mm-hmm. in for the last year and a half. And we went up to her center, and um, Frederic is an anthropologist that's broken from the pack and, um, and really come out with a, a very stirring, powerful critique of, of the entire Western basis of uh, rational thought, uh, the epistemology and ontology uh, of the modern world. And she's now arguing very strongly for a reintroduction of indigenous ways, uh, especially uh, what she calls the cosmocentric economy, which is uh, the active expression of reciprocity with the rest of the world. Um, And at her center, uh, Frederic is, uh, which is is called uh, Sachamama, by the way, if anybody wants to go on the internet and look it up, it's Sachamama which means uh, uh, forest mother, basically, uh-huh. in Quechua. Mm-hmm. And um, some people may know about the Tierra Preta, which has been recently rediscovered as being the pre-Columbian method of agriculture in the Amazon rain basin. I mean, basically, our whole model of what life was like in the Amazon for, you know, that we've held for the last 500 years has turned out to be completely wrong there were highly developed civilizations in the midst of the Amazon rainforest. It was not slash and burn. Mm-hmm. They had intensive agriculture underway, and it was supporting urban centers with highly sophisticated ways of life. And uh, we know this from the earliest chronicles that were left um, by all well, the first parties to go through, which 
spread the smallpox and influenza that decimated yeah. 90% and just brought about a complete collapse of the peoples. But we also now know it from archaeology because they've now determined that a third of the Amazon rainforest is anthropogenic. It was shaped by human hands, cultivated as a garden. Wow. And there are huge swaths of soil in the Amazon which continue to this day to be fertile. To this day. And the conventional wisdom about the Amazon is, well, it's sand. There's no nutrients in the soil. It's all locked into the forest. Mm -hmm. But no. In the intensive agriculture that these pre-Columbian Amazonian peoples were practicing, they were creating a soil, which is called terpeta in, uh, in uh, Portuguese, which was permanently fertile. And it was done with a combination of elements like biochar and, and some other things. Um, and in layering it and continuing to cultivate with it, you can create a soil which um, is, uh, does not need fertilizer past a certain point. It's, it's set. And what uh, this anthropologist, Frederick Apfel Marglin, had done was uh, discovered the recipe. Now, she did it with the help of her community, of course, mm -hmm. but uh, what she's doing at her Center for Cultural Regeneration is spreading the word throughout the Native communities there. And they're beginning to slowly take on this method. Uh, there's, you know, it's been 500 years of, of um, having their traditions devalued and, and taken away from them. So it's, it's a slow process, but they're getting it. And what Frederick and I are now working on is a book which will not only give the recipe for how to make this soil, which we call Yana Achpa in Keshwa, but also um, we're going to be arguing very strongly for uh, the receiving this as a gift in the appropriate way and receiving it as our opportunity to begin reintroducing that indigenous consciousness of reciprocity back into our lives. Because it's, it's time to take another fork in the road. We, we can either use, we can steal another resource from the South American indigenous people and use it as another band-aid while we continue this machine-like insane existence that we've been conducting for the last 500 years or we can have some humility and begin cultivating the soil with true respect. And um, that's what the book is. It's, it's actually, we have a, a large theoretical section where we, we um, dismantle the Western paradigm so that people can actually argue that, no, hey, um, you know, this modernist paradigm we're living in was actually created by certain people and certain economic and social conditions. And it's not uh, authoritative. It's as culturally relative as other belief systems that cultures have held. And if you can dismantle that sense of no exit within modern culture, you have, uh, you're empowered 
to do more, to save the planet, express your love for creation. Mm-hmm. So that's the direction that the medicines have taken me in. That's the new book project we're on, and and we're looking at setting up a center down in Lamas as well, you know, that can also devote itself to cultural regeneration and educating Westerners that want to come down and work in these traditions. What is the uh, the connection with water in this way of uh, mm-hmm. of connecting with the soil and uh, mm-hmm. making it uh, our... Well, well yeah. I, would ref- I would refer you to the wonderful discussions that Frederic has in her most recent book, Subversive Spiritualities, How Rituals Create the World. Because she depicts some of the water festivals that are held among the Andean people. And they're, they're totally delightful. People become the water. The water has to run with joy to run well. And, and so um, there's, there's this fantastic... Uh, intra-action that the, uh, that the native people of the Andes still practice with their waters. And I would recommend you to her book for a fuller description. Okay. okay. And also what I mean is um, remembering and bringing back this way of, of connecting with the soil. How does this connect to the fact that uh, we are perhaps running out of water in other parts of the world? I don't know. <laughs> I, think it's up, I think it's up to us to find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, I, we were just talking about this this weekend, that you can call it rain. That's right. You can, you can, you can affect the weather with your intention. And we've seen it happen in prayer again and again. That's right. I was when I was asking you that, uh, I was thinking and feeling that um, water is a relationship, like everything else. You bet. Yeah. When I was just in Shaveen after a ceremony, we uh, had built a big roaring fire while the rain was falling. You know, Chavinza Valley, it's one of the most sacred places in all of South America, maybe the world. Where is it? And, what uh, country? Hmm? What country? Peru. Yes. And uh, people keep blowing conches. <laughs> They're into blowing conches. And the native guys are all standing around going, will you quit with the conch? You're calling the rain. Mm. <laughs> and it keeps getting wetter and wetter, and people keep blowing the conches. And finally, one of the musicians begins to play uh, a dance on his panpipes, the Andean flute. And we, we begin dancing around the circle, just having a really great time. And by the time we're done, the rain's gone. <laughs> so we just, we just turned our focus to Tatiwara, you know, the Tatiwari, the... Uh, the fire ancestor, and uh, the weather shifted. And this is not to say it's control. 
It's um, it's relational. Exactly. It's because you love. You love the elements. You pray to them. You know how to relate to them. You respect their rituals. Exactly. The future will be primitive or it will not be. Who said that? <laughs> well, the site is called Future Primitive, so <laughs> you're, you're, you're prompting me to say that. It's a good quote. <laughs> yeah. So, actually, I'm hearing that you are full of, full of, of, of hope and and uh, and creativity for the future from your life in the indigenous lands of the amazon and the andes etc it's given me a, a sense of service yeah 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 so uh, what will your new book be called don't know yet. Um, it's very tentative. We're just getting down to work, but it might be a title like Sacred Soil. Yeah, yeah. I guess it hasn't called itself yet. No, it's still it's still in that in that formative stage. It's uh, you know, it's like giving birth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for your wonderful words and stories, Robert, and I just want to ask you to um, take a moment inside and uh, think about what you would like to say in closing to the people who listen to Future Primitive. <laughs> well, honestly, I would like to invite you to make the closing, because you've been such a wonderful interviewer. <laughs> Uh, uh, I'd like to. I'd like to ask you if you would cause the interview, please. Wow. Well, then, thank you. And another word for it, it's gratitude that comes to mind and flows from the heart. I love that you love your child and your life so much that you are searching deeply for ways to collaborate with the planet for her health. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for doing this program. I'm yes, sure Robert. You're reaching a lot of people in a, in a very valuable way. Thank you. It's my joy. Mm -hmm.